Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello! Welcome to the Generations edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business, finance, and other news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon. I'm joined by Anna Shemansky and Jordan Weissman and Malcolm Harris. Malcolm Harris, welcome. Thanks for having me. You're here to plug a book. Absolutely, as many times as possible. Um, well, you get to do it once up top. Fair enough. What is it? It's Kids These Days, Human Capital and the Making of Millennials. It's out from Little Brown, wherever fine books are sold. And you put the word millennials in your subtitle. You you went there. I did. I, I, I'm a, I like millennials as a both as a cohort and as a word. Because, you know, there are certain places like Fusion, which banned the word years ago on the grounds that it was it conceals more than it reveals and that there's not much you can actually usefully say about this generation. We're going to actually, let's just jump into this because this is your book. Correct me if I'm wrong is basically predicated on the idea that there is something you can usefully say about this entire generation and that they are different in some important ways from previous generations. And that like looking at those differences can be illuminating. Yeah, that was definitely how I entered into the project, uh, and hopefully something I think people can get out of it is a way to use generational analysis productively. I would definitely agree that most generational analysis is not very productive. So you have managed, after spending much time writing this book, to find like the little nuggets of like useful differences that we can, say, unite the people born between 1980 and 2000 um, in contradistinction to those born between, say, 60 and 80 or 40 and 60 or any other previous generations? Yeah. So most of the generational conversation, we usually talk about it in terms of consumption. So what do people from this uh, 20 years born birth period share in terms of the things they like to buy? Um, That's not the approach I took for my book, which is more about how can we use the experiences of people born in this period to illuminate changes to the social structure over this time period. So I liked your book a lot, even though I also found myself disagreeing with something almost on every other page, but just like the general argument I found really compelling and illuminating. And I'm going to give a little speech, but Uh for about why, but this is millennial. This is Jordan doing his millennial. I'm going to give a speech. I'm going to, but but, and I should say, Malcolm, you are also millennial. You're born 88. I was born 86. I am also millennial. 82. I'm an old millennial. We are actually, we are outnumbering you Felix badly here, but I'm just going to sit back and let you guys, let you millennials, you pesky kids take over from, you know, very Gen X, very slacker. When (laughs) I was a teenager, right? I used to think about my like, 
you know, peers as sort of the Ritalin generation, right? Like we, so many people I knew were just like drugged up. Mm-hmm. That was so many people were on ADHD meds and it really made an impact on the way people live their lives and the way they saw the world. Um, and then as I got a little bit older and I started, I ended up in college, I started thinking about us more as sort of resume builders. Mm-hmm. That was sort of how I was, I was like, okay, everyone here is very adept at being sort of the organization kit to that's like the one time I'll ever borrow David Brooks <laughs> like construction willingly, but that's sort of how people started to appear. And then once I started writing about economics and post uh, Occupy, I started to see things more in terms of, oh, we're the generation that's been shaped by inequality. Literally mm-hmm. all of us have been growing up in the you know post-Reagan era. And your book kind of takes it all and puts it together um, in a really useful way and says, actually, what makes millennials different is that all these things are representative of the fact that we're the generation that was just completely formed by this type of laissez-faire capitalism and the logic of that late 20th century, early 21st century capitalism that's made, that's just shaped our, you know, from childhood through early adulthood and has everything and, and has just kind of geared us towards, you know, being productive workers at all times and maximizing everything we can do to sort of make our to maximize our human capital okay, and that's so let where me, we get to let me sort of ask the obvious question here which is you know the the defining movies i guess of, of my generation would be things like slacker or you know reality uh, bites reality bites mm-hmm. uh or you know and we would listen to nirvana and like there was none of that sort of um resume building going on what explains that difference i mean you've been looking at like grand macro forces and inequality and stuff and i'm pretty sure that there were grand macro forces and inequality even in the 80s um so what what is it that explains this sort of generational difference between you and me because i'm lazy and you're like very hardworking. <laughs> well I, I don't know about all that but the the distinction between quantitative and qualitative shifts right so we have this um quantitative shift people are receiving less for their work over time, um, productivity and compensation start diverging in late 70s, early 80s. And this characteristic, uh, this experience describes uh, people who are alive and in the job market at that time as well. But that's not the conditions under which you are developed as human beings. And so that's, that's the distinction this qualitative break that we see so basically so so, so what you're saying is that if i grew up in like the 70s when inequality wasn't as bad and then then that kind of upbringing basically gave me the idea that i could be a slacker whereas if i grew up in the post reagan era when inequality was getting worse then i just realized that i needed to fight tooth and claw or your or your parents impressed you with that like your parents kind of bred you i was going to say when you're thinking about millennials many millennials are fundamentally children of the 90s so they experienced a shift a shift from mm. the clinton years this sense of frankly a lot of hope and optimism and then the 9-11 happened and then i think if not almost more importantly, the Great Recession happened. And one of the defining characteristics about millennials is not just that they're affected by inequality. It's that they came into the labor force during the Great Recession. Mm-hmm. And that 
historically has always been a problem when people begin their working life in downturns. And we're certainly seeing that now. But it's not the Great Recession, I think, is definitely important, but it's not the just the proximate event, at least in my analysis. It's the whole decades of policy that allow the conditions for the Great Recession to occur in the first place. And so it's not just about perception that you had a different perception um, in the 70s than we had in the 90s as children. That's a reality in terms of that the stakes are actually higher if you're a young person growing up in the 90s. And so, this is mm-hmm. true if you look at what you need now to succeed, because even though most millennials do not have college degrees, actually, more millennials have college degrees than any previous generation. And having a college degree is necessary and a college degree from a top college and potentially a graduate school degree is much more necessary than it was in the past, as well as internships and many other things. Okay, so given that we've all agreed that like there's this crazy rat race that millennials are working much, much harder than anyone has ever worked for much, much lower rewards and it's it's all miserable. Um, <laughs> Dan Schrader is nodding in his, <laughs> in his control, control booth. Um Tell me, just rewind a little bit for for the olds who might be listening to this and who might not have like, you know, caught up with this revisionist analysis and explain like where did this stereotype of the lazy and entitled millennial come from? Not from millennials. Um, <laughs> that's a, that's certainly true. So that has been a media propagation. I'm not sure who first came up with the idea, although it's definitely been popular around a certain cohort of middle-aged white male <laughs> commentators, um, the the David Brookses of the world. But it has definitely served a purpose, and we can look at the purpose um, it served, which seems more obvious to me than anything else, which is to, again, make young workers feel like they're not worth much. And that is keeps pushing wages down, which is, again, the whole characteristic. I think, I think the bigger purpose, frankly, is guilt assuagement. That since it's all our fault that you guys are in this predicament, um, it's a lot easier to look at underpaid millennials and say, well, they're underpaid because they're lazy, rather than to look at underpaid millennials and say, well, they're underpaid because of like broad um, systemic issues which we created. Yeah, I'm not sure guilt assuagement is like a, a real policy of the... No, but it, it has an explanatory power. Like people tend to believe things which render them blameless, mm-hmm. and so. But yeah, I think we can all agree that that, that this you know. Well, I isn't think true. I think also the the idea that millennials are lazy is actually. You know, it's it's not unique to say a generation is lazy. That's that that's <laughs> right. Like every generation, that, whenever you see like one of the the common retorts you you see on the internet is just to collect all, like magazine covers from like you know the seventies, calling you know who calling the sixties, calling every new generation lazy and shiftless and lacking the virtues of the older generation. So that's just, that's sort of like a knee jerk thing that whoever is a little bit you know is aging out of coolness will do essentially. So, and, but it's not every generation. It's specifically the baby boomers, and so it's specific the relation between the baby boomers and their parents that is taken as the the archetypical relationship between generations period even though it doesn't describe our relations in general at all you assume that like younger people do more drugs for example 
That's just the baby boomers. Younger <laughs> people do not do more drugs. That's just the baby boomers yeah, we, do more drugs. Less drugs, less sex, less yeah, less law breaking at this but point. It's, but again, it's not like we're the only generation who has ever you know, changed in that way. It's just that baby boomers have set us up to expect a certain kind of relation between young people and old people as the er relation between young people and old people. And and of being like rooted in rebellion, basically. Right. And and yeah, symbolic frustrations. Although that was somewhat of Gen X as well. There was there, there was a little bit, but like not that the baby boomers ever noticed. Also the other thing is that the Gen X the boomers so outnumbered Gen X mm-hmm. that like there was there was very little ability for us to rebel. There were very few of us. And now the millennials have come along in this massive cohort and uh, you know, dominating the economy in a way that my generation never did. So I kind of want to get back to the, the big thrust of your book, mm-hmm. which is that the millennials are at their core the product of class war, right? Like everything we yeah. we are we are the result of our parents and the generations that came before trying to make the perfect workers and the perfect low wage workers. Um, and you know, I think there's and when I said that kind of connects a bunch of of disparate you know features of 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 our generation. Um, to, to, you know, an example of that is you talk about mental health and the way that a lot of kids were essentially given ADHD meds and just met it up from, you know, time they were kids, uh, you know, up until, you know, in, in, through college. And essentially it's correcting flaws in ourselves as workers. We're making so, ourselves. So and, can, but, can you, I just want to so, jump in in this class war thing because this relates to what we were just talking about. Um, how is it that, that the your parents yeah. managed to successfully create this generation of like people trying to create trying to improve themselves in a way that like the boomers parents utterly failed and the boomers would just like say fuck you and rebel well because i think part of the point of the book is like it's you had to it was necessity you couldn't rebel really because the stakes were so high and Mm -hmm. everyone kind of knows i mean like right malcolm that's kind of the point is like you need like this was you know you either sink or swim, and kids know that from a very early age, whether you're high on the economic totem pole or very low on it. You know, the stakes are, the outcomes are worse if you're poor, but it's the same. And the rewards are bigger if you're rich, but everyone has that same sense of insecurity. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that that insecurity, though, comes from multiple sources. I do agree that it partly comes from the fact that labor is more precarious now than it used to be, that wage wages have stagnated but some of the reason that that has happened is also from certain things that are actually not bad the fact that more women are in the labor force mm-hmm. the fact that we have more global competition because you've had developing middle classes in a lot of other countries i don't actually think those are bad things and yes that does create a lot more competition for frankly a lot of the white men who had it a bit easier in the Absolutely. past. Yeah, no, the fact that, you know, childhood uh, violin prodigies in America have to compete against childhood violin prodigies in China now, it's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing that, you know, children in throughout the world, more of them are playing the violin. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that. What's wrong is when you say, when you prevent someone from living a secure, happy, safe life based on their failure to excel in these particular ways so the outcome i think is bad i think the world is worse um, the world or just america i guess that's a good question in this book i am talking about america 
Although I've heard from a surprising number of Europeans that it makes a lot of sense to them. So this is interesting, though, because if surprised. you're yes, because if you're going to talk about youth unemployment in Europe, which is frankly a bigger issue, that is because of strict labor laws and a lot of protections that definitely benefit older workers, but to the detriment of younger workers and immigrants. Yeah, well, and a lot of what they've talked about is also the hollowing out of the welfare state um, that has in the past advantaged uh, younger people in in a, a labor system that does advantage older workers and has for a long time. Right. But what I'm trying to say is that this is why it's hard to think of how we fix this, because if you look at the different forms that capitalism has taken mm-hmm. in Europe, in Scandinavia versus in the United States and the U.K., U.S. and the U.K. has been a much more laissez-faire kind of you have your France and then Nordic countries, other whole other thing. When you're talking about issues with labor force participation of young people, it's a problem in all of these different mm-hmm. um, systems for different reasons, because if you have. Right. So you can't blame the system because no matter what the system, you have these issues. Right. And then if you want to go the whole other way, I- I'm sure a lot of young people in Caracas will also tell you it's very, very bad there. So, Right. Well, and I'm I'm not one of those people who says, you know, we need to be like Denmark because they've got it figured out. Because if you talk to people in Denmark, they don't feel like they've got it figured out. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and... 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. So I want to, because we're talking about generations, um, one of the questions which I don't think you've spent a lot of time on in your book but has been fascinating me of late is that millennials are now the overwhelming majority of new parents in this country. Mm. Um, You guys are having the next generation. And there is a whole new generation coming up behind you. There's like Gen Z or whatever you want to call it. Um, And I guess my question to you is like, are there important differences between the pre-2000 cohort and the post-2000 cohort, how are you um, raising your kids any differently than like your parents raised you? Well, I don't personally have any children, at least not <laughs> as yet. Um, I'm not an expert on that topic, so I'm, I'm curious to hear what you guys think. Uh, I haven't heard a compelling argument about what the break between millennials and Gen Z would be. Most of the ones so that when I've you heard talk are about cell phones or iPhones. So when you talk proximate. about millennials, you basically mean people born after 1980 rather than like cutting it off in 2000. I do think there is a difference between people who were born before the things I mentioned previously, the Great Recession, 9-11, and those who were born after. I do actually think there's a substantive difference because I think one of the characteristics of going back to a little bit millennials, especially, frankly, upper class millennials, is this sense of disappointment 
of like, it was supposed to be so much better than this. The West Wing led me to believe. Whereas what I've seen with younger kids is that they don't have that. They grew up entirely in this world. Yep. In the the post 9-11 yeah. dystopia. <laughs> American <laughs> politics. And the yeah, I, I think, I mean, I tend to agree with that to some extent. And I think traditionally Gen Z, I mean, when... In pop demographics, it, it tends mm-hmm. to be around like 2000, right? That That's usually, it is the, the post, you know, actually the people born after the change of the millennium, uh, ironically, uh, are they? Right, and well, generations tend to be about 20 years long. Yeah, they, so, I mean, that is that is the group we're talking about. I mean, I think it's too soon to know how millennials are going to be uh, as parents, just Felix, because our kid, you know, our generation's kids are extremely young, right? Like, also, we haven't had time. Okay, so we haven't uh, had time to fuck them up. Okay, yet. well, like, that's and we're having not, them at later ages. That's, yeah, that too. That's not true. Um, there, there's, there's two things which aren't <laughs> true. Um, num- the first thing that isn't true is that you're having them. At, I mean, a little bit later than than like my generation, but like the big no. gap came up from the boomers. We are having them later, though. Yes, but, and it's but, actually significantly. But later. The, the the other big thing, which like you know, I'll, I'll pull out something which I was toying with the idea of using as a sort of episode ending number here, is twenty one percent, which is the percentage of millennials who believe that vaccines cause autism. Like you are influencing your kids, and no previous generation has um, has like embraced these sort of wackadoodle ideas to the same. That's interesting extent. because I think another characteristic potentially of millennials and I think Gen Z as well is a lack of trust in institutions, a lack of trust in the media, a lack of trust in. I mean, they're less religious. They they don't belong to political parties, and I think what you're saying right there. I mean. Obviously, I think all of us agree that people who don't believe in vaccination are idiots, but I think it fits in with a larger trend of distrusting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, I mean, that's clearly measurable. And uh, and just like the, the fears we were talking about for parents earlier, not unreasonable. So part of the problem here is is that when we talk about generations, we are talking about these 20-year cohorts and as you said, like millennials are having kids in their 30s. And so the kids who were born in like 2000 to 2007, you know, the sort of today's tweens, they're not actually the kids of millennials. No. And breaking down the 20-year cohorts and, and such, that's usually how it ends up playing out. And we like to think of these generations as parent-child relations, again, back to a baby boomer and we have all these Oedipal ideas that figure in and the tensions between generations. Um, but I don't think that's the most kind of valuable generational analysis you can do. I think the most kind of valuable generational analysis you can do is look at the the major changes to society over those kind of periods and how they manifest in people's not just uh, like consumptive behavior, but their activity, their productive behavior. So um, so the major change to society, and this is the thesis which um, Gene Twenge and others have come along, that the major change to society which has happened in the sort of what you might call the post-millennial era, which has really affected today's teens, has been the iPhone, for lack of a better word. Like the, 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 the world has shrunk down to the size of a screen that you can hold in your hand. And there are 
certain to be consequences to that, especially if you grow up in that world in your most formative years. Do you buy that thesis? No, not really. Uh, <laughs> the, the changes that I'm looking at, um, like the rate of exploitation, like the, the, the nature of labor contracts are decades-long processes. The idea that a particular piece of technology, and she really does, Twenge does say the iPhone specifically uh, over and over throughout her book on the topic. Uh, she calls it the iGen. iGen, which yeah. is also the name of her consulting company. <laughs> Jesus. Um, uh, yeah, I don't buy that. I think brand names are are popular for a reason because companies spend a lot of time um, making them popular and establishing nice connections in our brains. So when we hear I anything, we get a nice little buzz, um, including the explanation that iPhones are responsible for the character of our children. It still gives us a nice little buzz when we hear iPhone. Yeah, I, I was going to I was going to ask, I mean, how much of the drive to kind of define generations and write long think pieces about them um, just comes from like people who want consulting gigs. I mean, how much of it is actually just like commerce as far as you, you know, as someone who's written a book about it, like how much? As far as I can tell, a lot of it seems to be driven that way. Um, if you do generational analysis, people will come and ask you to speak to corporations for money, for obscene amounts of money, for way more money than you can make writing anything anywhere. And it's hard to turn that down, I would imagine. Well, and why should you? I, I um, in my observations, it does not lead to very productive work. I, I've had this book out now for three months and I'm already sort of tired talking about it. I can't <laughs> imagine doing that for 10 more years, basically saying the same bromides over and over again to different groups of capitalists. I mean, I think it also, my guess is it probably over time degrades the quality of your work because if you're going to go and do, you know, these speaking engagements, you kind of need a really easy to digest idea, big idea. And, you know, the Twenge piece we brought up, her her argument right now is that Gen Z is depressed, that the iPhone has made everyone depressed. Going Correct. on Facebook on, all mm -hmm. the time has left them emotional cripples. And if you actually look at the data that she cites over like a 20 year period, she's talking about a blip. Like yes. it's a tiny little blip Although in I the kind data. Of like, it has the power of being sort of intuitive as you know i oh, think yeah. I'm, i think sure. i mentioned that like <laughs> that's when that's the perfect like consultant like but, but idea. like when i deleted twitter for three weeks like i became you know I, I was quite astonished at the effect it had on me and i feel like if you grow up at that and you know in those incredibly important years between call it seven and 15 with you know reloading Instagram a hundred times a day, that will have an effect. Yeah, but that, I, that seems like the perfect, that's so the perfect idea way for a consultant to talk about generation because it's just projecting adult anxieties onto the next batch of of, of the youths. You know? <laughs> like, <laughs> yes, I'm going to slightly disagree with you okay. because I do think that not just the iPhone itself, but social media and having social media be such a part of your life from a very young age, do we really know the effect of that? No. Despite what a lot of people have said, the science is just not there. We don't know. But to say that it, we also don't know it doesn't, <laughs> again, we just don't know. 
I also want to point out that I I think, yes, sometimes people write things because they want to go in the speaking circuit. They want to be able to talk to corporations, but also because people love to read stories about generations. Mm -hmm. They do. It's very popular, although it, it depends what you're saying. Some things that you say about generations are more popular than others. So, are you telling me it's it's not popular to say that the generation has been formed by class conflict? Not as <laughs> not as popular as it is to say it's been formed by the iPhone. It turns out. Well, mm-hmm. and I was listening. You folks a few weeks ago were talking about an investment group that had approached Apple about how addictive the iPhone. Jana. Is. Jana. Yeah. I would be shocked if they had not employed the services of probably Twenty. Yeah. And so these are that's a like direct outcome that you see of this kind of work. But like you said on the episode, nothing's going to happen from that. And so there's a, there's a great thing about saying it's the iPhone because no one's going to give up their iPhone. And so it's a lot, it's like saying it's the weather, you know? It might as well be the weather. No, the Apple's not going to change the iPhone. Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people came here, ransacked my computer. And I, I got people fractured me, I got this and that, but I'm safe. And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's Rebel Billionaire on the Slow Newscast, wherever you get your podcasts. So let's finish up here with some news. Because, like, we can hand wave a lot about generations, but ultimately, this is a news show. And, Jordan. Yeah. What did the Labor Department just do? So, Department of Labor earlier this month put out new guidelines about what it considers a internship. What's okay for an inter- Oh, God, Malcolm, his Malcolm eyes is are bugging his, and shaking. shaking his head. And I should say, part of this has to do with a court decision Mm -hmm. and a fight with the Obama administration. Basically, what happened was the Obama administration tried to stamp out unpaid internships. That's or like largely stamp them out because after all these years, people started looking at them and saying, hey, we're just telling kids to work for nothing. Um, And they're doing things that should be entry level employment. Uh, And so they created this test, this kind of six point tests that was very uh, stringent. Uh, And that and then also there was sort of some litigation going. People brought lawsuits against media companies, for the instance, Fox Searchlight. Fox Searchlight. So this was all. So there was all this ferment going around unpaid internships. One of those lawsuits that was going on ended up going up on appeal. A court struck it down, uh, and in their decision, they basically also said that the test that the Obama administration had come up with uh, wasn't going to fly. And so now the Department of Labor has gone and created new guidelines, um, sort of more in keeping with that court decision, uh, more, that more or less are going to allow people, companies to, I think, go back to unpaid labor in much more easily. That's kind of long and short of it the way I see it. Malcolm, do you agree? Or Yeah, well, the, the, the six-point test was very rigorous. I'm not sure if it, the Obama administration wrote it. I, what happened... They enshrined it, I think. They kind of went back to it. Yeah. And Hilda Solis, uh, when she was labor secretary, I believe, sent a letter to universities saying, stop awarding credit for internships that violate the Fair Labor Standards Act, which says you have to pay a minimum wage for labor. If you derive benefit from a worker, you have to pay them the minimum wage. That's what the minimum wage means. And a bunch of leading college presidents, including presidents of the UC system, John Sexton, the president of NYU, sent a letter back basically saying, fuck off. 
don't butt into our internships, which was ridiculous. And the Fox Searchlight case, which was filed by these men, one of whom was not a young person at all, but was someone who had gone back for a second career and was like a full grown man in his 30s. And they were, you know, running coffee. They were doing uh, gopher jobs for which they weren't being paid. And they sued. And on the law, they were totally right. And that's what the trial court judge ruled, was that obviously this internship was illegal, which made almost every unpaid internship in the country illegal, which would have made made for countless lawsuits. I have no idea how much in back wages, but I think I did some back-of-the-envelope math, and it was really a lot. Um, And the appeals court judge basically looked at the world and looked at the ruling and said, this is not going to happen. And so we have a situation now where the DOL has just accepted reality as the law. And this this also happens to be entirely in line with sort of Republican orthodoxy, which is like, these are regulations. And you're, if, if you have right. a company which wants to hire unpaid interns and you have a bunch of interns who want to be unpaid interns and you, you, you know the market is clearing at that price of zero who are we right. to, in, to to insert ourselves into this happily clearing market it's the same it's the standard just pretending regulations don't exist is the disruption of the day right and so you say if, we, if i want to contract labor with you you know if you want to give me your labor for a dollar an hour or i'm sorry five hundred dollars a month in a stipend which is how they were getting around wage questions earlier um, then we should be able to make that deal. And, you know, the Department of Labor shouldn't get involved. That's ridiculous. And when the laws did change under Obama and also a number of state laws, I know in, in New York City, it had an impact in many companies. Just they really gave a lot more thought to right. whether because the fear of being sued. Right. They looked at the the possibility of a lawsuit and decided it wasn't worth it not to pay people. But now... Now it's not worth it to pay anybody. I, I, I want to um, come kind of come back to your book with this and, and get a mm-hmm. little bit, take the long view again. You have the, this really great insight where you talk about kind of the logic of what we call human capital, right? And really what that just means is like learning shit and skills, right? right. Um, and it's like a really key part to the way the economy, you have to accumulate as much human capital as you can. And you talk about how the logic of just laissez-faire capitalism is that you put as much training as possible onto the worker. The worker mm-hmm. should bring all of their capital to the company, and it should not be the company's responsibility because it's not profitable to train people. It's you're better off if you can just like buy the capital from the worker. Um, and internships are sort of unpaid internships are like a great example of that argument. It's the idea is we really shouldn't have to pay to train at all. We should just have to. We should be able to just like get your human capital, bring it to us, and you're developing your capital. And that's in fact we're giving you something. We'll sign and, the piece of paper that says you went here. Yes, exactly. And it's just like it's a really it's newsy, but it's that is it's a wonderful just example of the logic of how the economy has worked for millennials. It's it's, it's on you. It, it's on you. It's not on us. And you are going to sink or swim. And, the, you know, an unpaid internship is part is one of your strokes. And it makes you feel sort of crazy where you look, talk to older people, you talk to cohorts, and they have this idea of like how jobs work um, and what happens when you have a job and how you get treated by your boss. And then you go to work and you're like, that's not what I see. This is not how I'm treated by the world. This is a different relation. And to me, the real problem, if you're talking about 
unpaid internships is that who can afford to take unpaid internships? So those numbers I was actually really surprised about, um, which in retrospect shouldn't have surprised me, but unpaid internships actually skew lower on the the class division because people who are wealthier and have connections are able to get the paid internships. Oh, that's They're fair. able to go okay. work for yeah. Google or whatever. And so you have situations and that's actually so, so really like, negative in terms of mm-hmm. the perception of unpaid interns is if, that if my and, if my hedge fund managing dad bids $40,000 at a charity auction to buy me an internship at Vogue, that's not what we're talking about here. No, no, we're t- I mean the Children of the privileged uh, have more access to better jobs. That's like one of the aspects of being privileged. And, and maybe so, that maybe that internship at Vogue that my dad paid forty thousand dollars for actually pays. Right. Yeah. Well, I so Vogue probably wouldn't have paid back in the day. Um, but media is also a weird exception. And I think that actually has colored the way the whole world sees unpaid mm-hmm. internships. Is that it's a prestige industry where a lot of the interns were unpaid. Um, other prestige industries paid. That that that's just how like you know if you go to Google like you said or Facebook or wherever or um you know Goldman they pay their interns because they really do think they think of it as uh you know as they want to train people and get the best people possible but it's lower down you know it's smaller companies and whatnot where mm-hmm. they they won't do it and that's why you end up with a bunch of poor kids working for nothing yeah and people trying to build their human capital trying to build their resume while also working to wage jobs to support themselves there was a great piece I think about it a year or two ago. I think in the Times about D- interns in DC, um, where a lot of the internships are not paid because they're so high prestige and there's so many un- nonprofits and such. And these are kids who are working class, doing wage jobs, um, two of them at a time, so that they can support themselves building their human capital at the same time. And that's not the understanding when you say unpaid intern that we have of mm-hmm. who those people are. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. At some future episode... I I want to have a whole segment on pay structures at nonprofits because this is a, a something which I'm obsessed by. But I think that is um, a good segue for us to move into the numbers round. Which um, do you have a number, Anna? I do. What's your number? <laughs> My number is thirty five point four percent. That is the youth unemployment rate in Tunisia. The reason I'm bringing this up. And that I think it's particularly disturbing in the Tunisian context is that one of the things we're seeing is that because a lot of young people have not seen any economic benefits to democracy, they're starting to somewhat turn against democracy and not see it as being that worthwhile. Jordan? My number is uh, 
25.0329%. Uh, that is, uh, according to the Brookings Institution, the uh, percentage of student loan borrowers uh, who, who I guess started in 2003, 2004 school year, um, who have defaulted on their loans already, I guess about 10 years out or 11 years out. Um, and they did this study where they said up to like 41% could eventually default, um, which I don't I don't really love that 41% figure. It's kind of projecting past trends that were influenced by the Great Recession forward. But still, that 25% number is big because that is basically as many defaults as we had from the entire 1995-96 cohort over 20 years. Um, so it's kind of it, it's kind of frightening, and it's just a statement about. Um, how student debt has, re I mean, this is the most concrete way it has it has ruined a lot of people's financial lives is through defaults and unnecessary defaults. Um, and just, a, you know, a lot of people were not prepared to deal with it. They were never told how to handle their debt. Um, they should not have been given the loans. Um, they were given them under, you know, kind of, uh, you know, false pretenses from for-profit colleges or whatnot. It just, it's such a mess. I've got a number in response to that number, I guess. Okay, what's that? Um, and it's the the last cohort I, I looked at, so it must have been the, like 2015 loans. They estimated that the return on principal from defaulted borrowers, defaulted borrowers, to be clear, was 109% of principal. Um, so people are when people are defaulting on student loans, it doesn't mean that they're not paying back the loan's principal in its entirety. Overall, they are paying back the loan's principal in its entirety. Well, it gets a little bit more complicated that when you're talking about how you properly value loans. Yeah. That's but true. the amount, yeah, the number, the dollars that they borrow, they're paying back the 30 grand they borrowed for school. But the return, wait, just to be clear, the return is 9% or it's 109%? Do you get back more than double? No, 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 no. Not, not, not the return on the bond. They're, they are paying total back on average the defaulted borrowers 109% of the principal of their loan. Okay. And and, and, not, and not to the government the government is not collecting all of that all either. Right. Yeah, the government still collection. loses money because of the right. collections process. However, not, not as much as you might imagine. Exactly. Actually, it depends on how you calculate that. <laughs> yeah, that's a whole other we could conversation. We could literally do an entire probably two episodes about student loan accounting. Yes, it's, the, it is a it weird is. psychedelic. It really is. It's a psychedelic corner of the of the federal yes, budget, the, but, but I should I be. should just mention um a while back on this show, we had Ellie Mistel on this show oh, talking yes. about his um, defaulted student loans. Um, he has he is now undefaulted on those student loans. He came to an agreement with his private creditors, and he no longer has any private student loan debt. Congratulations, Ellie. In fact, uh, I, I do a guest spot on this week's Above the Law podcast. I'm talking with Ellie and, and Joe, partly about his, his new newfound freedom. Uh, so y'all should go and find that podcast. It's really great. Um, and then I guess my number is 33, which is the number of years that this ridiculously unspeakable um, event called the President's Club Annual Dinner oh my was held in London, um, a men-only dinner at the Dorchester Hotel where they would hire a bunch of hostesses to wear short black dresses with black underwear that was um, specified. specified. And um, and would like get increasingly drunker over the course of the evening and start becoming more and more gropy and lecherous and start you know 
asking them propositioning. If they were propositioning and, yeah. yeah, it was particularly nasty. Um, was the phrase the, a boob job for the missus? Was that like yes, the thing they that auctioned was, off that at one, one point? of the things one they were auctioning off? Were auctioning yes. off. Yeah. A boob job for the missus. In case you had any any pretenses about the or the British aristocracy, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right? can't let them trick you with the accents. Yeah, but um, but the the thing which was kind of delicious and delightful about this was that the entire edifice got brought down. The President's Club no longer exists. They oh, wait, have, I didn't. They, really they have, they have closed down. They have disbanded. And the person who brought it down was a millennial woman, Madison Marriage from the Financial Times, who is the hero of the week, who went undercover as one of the hostesses. And the men at the dinner just... It never even occurred to them that these women who were serving them might actually have brains or be able to fight back in any way. And this one woman basically just brought down the whole thing. So well done, millennial women, especially if you work at the FT. Things can happen fast. Bravo. So I think that's it for us this week. Thank you for listening to Slate Money. Um, Keep those emails coming to slatemoney at slate.com. Listen to the gist every single day. Every day, Mike Pesca will have interviewees. He will rant about the news. He will become your best friend. And that happens at slate.com slash the gist. Um, many thanks to Dan Schrader for producing in his overworked, underpaid millennial um, way that he does. And we will talk to you next week on Slate money. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.